Bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above, from the mountain, from the mountains to the prairies. To the oceans, white with foam, God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, sweet It uh, is interesting how far we've come and how far we've gone away. Uh, today is a little unique in that um, we're going to be receiving communion today and praying at the end of the service. And on Fourth of July weekend, I never know who's going to be in the service. You know, it's a popular weekend to go, and people need to do that. You know, get out and take a break and go on vacations and things like that. But Today I want us to focus on uh, praying for America. Can we do that? And, uh, and kind of go through some things that are very important, I think, in regards to uh, the history of America and where we've come today, because you will not hear any of this today in, in, a, in a public school textbook or hard-pressed in a college one. Um, but it is all there, and it is part of our history. Praying for America. America has suffered, I believe, the greatest spiritual decline in history, and it saddens me. I quit watching the news a year ago, and I'm glad I did. The voices are all around us. Everything that we hold such value for and that we love is being called wicked and evil. And it was the very things that America was founded on 
only five out of 100 people in our Puget Sound area will get up this morning and go to church. We are still among the least churched places in the entire United States. Over 80% of those born from 1989 till now have never been in church. Do you realize that in the next 20 years there's going to be a, another huge major culture shift? The first one started with this right here some 21, 22 years ago now, the smartphone, and has progressed to a place where over 80% of the population of the up-and-coming, this generation will have never been inside the doors of a church. 85% of churches in America, I'm giving you the bad news right now, so hang on. 85% of America's churches are declining or plateaued. 85%. The 15% that are growing are growing less than 5% by conversion growth. That means people are jumping from church to church. Whoever's got the latest, greatest thing, they just go there. Transfer growth. George Barna says of over the 340 million people that live in America, now America has become the world's new mission field. We are the largest mission field only next to China and India, third in the world. This morning, I'd like to take a look at our history in America, and, and I'm going to venture through a lot of quotes from our founding fathers and things because it's very important, and I want us to take a look at what they believe in. America's past sins are our sins of slavery and humanism and our current sins of overindulgence and over-the-top lust-driven appetites and, and entitlements and, and the lack of self-control in this generation like none other has all be, been born because there was a major culture shift many years ago in America that dissed faith and removed faith in God or the principles of the Bible at the very least from living conditions in the world. And sadly, you'll not hear, again, as I said, much of any of this in any public school setting today. So we're getting ready to go into a history lesson a truthful one, an honest one, and a real appraisal of where we are in America. And I'm not going to pull any punches with the facts today. I think that they're very important. Did you know, first of all, first and foremost, very importantly, something that's touted in praise in our country, but is not true that America was never intended to be or start out to be a democracy? Did you know that? Did you know America was never intended to be a democracy, ever? In fact, our founding fathers went to great lengths to ensure that it wouldn't happen. Um, it doesn't the 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 security um, of our on our form of government rely on the people rather than their representatives? This part of the problem is the part of the problem today. We think that we're a democracy, but America never intended to be a democracy. And the flag, we don't pledge allegiance to the Republic of, to the Republic of America. That's what we pledge allegiance to. And there's a reason for it because the American Republic was a very important principle for the founding of our nation. Everyone is touting and praising democracy. You will hear that we have freedom because we have democracy. But democracy was never intended to be the case here. The difference between a republic and a democracy is the source of authority. 
I want to get into this. In a democracy, whatever the people want as a group, they are going to vote for, and therefore if murder is okay, it becomes law. Or if saying certain things, like we're seeing in Canada, you know, in, in, in England, where pastors are, are being actually put in jail because they're saying certain things about things that are sin in the Bible. Now, I'm not all for the way they might be saying them. They, they're, they're beating people up with the Bible to some, some of them, and I don't agree with that. But the truth is still the truth, and the ability in America to say things, whatever you want to say, should be just as true for those saying truths of the Bible as they are for the pornographer. In our republic, murder will always be a crime because it's a crime in the Bible, or at least it should be. There's a big difference between a democracy and a republic, and our founding fathers had an opportunity to create a democracy, and they specifically chose a republic. And we were not supposed to ever become a democracy. Founding father Fisher Adams wrote, a democracy is a volcano to which conceals the fiery materials of its own destruction. These will produce an eruption and carry desolation in their way because it just goes with what the culture wants rather than something else, and I'm getting there. Benjamin Rush said a simple democracy is the devil's own government. John Adams wrote, remember democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There was never a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. In fact, the founders actually included a provision in Article 4, Section 4, that, America, that each American state shall maintain a republican form of government. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking Republican and Democrat. I'm not talking political party. I'm talking about philosophy. Okay, now, we do see some of this in the parties today, but nonetheless, I'm not talking about our current political structures, whether they're Republican or Democrat, and the very few fighting in between independents think that they can just kind of wander there. Not that they're good or bad people either way, right? John Adams' words, democracy never lasts long, eventually committing suicide, are powerful statements. To consider that to be true is, is incomprehensible to us. Everyone is raising their rights in our culture, in our world, and they're saying, this is what we want, and we're going to get it, whether you like it or not. The founders actually included this in, in the provision of Article 4, Section 4, when they said that they should maintain a Republican form of, democ of, of, of government, they were talking about the significance of America moving forward and growing, actually because of faith in God and trust in the principles of the Bible. So what's the difference, really, between both of them, a republic or a democracy? Well, Noah Webster our, wrote this, our citizens should early understand that the genuine source of correct Republican principles is in the Bible, particularly the New Testament or the Christian religion. He spells it right out and says, actually, Christian religion. Noah Webster was a guy who was a brainiac, right? He wrote the, the, the entire uh, dictionary, and he could quote the entire Bible chapter and verse. We're not talking about a denigration of knowledge or a denigration of wisdom we're actually talking in our culture a denigration of knowledge and denigration of wisdom they were actually smarter years ago 
I think that they were much more studious on par, at least comparison, to where we are today. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed, right? And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the ideals for which the founders... 57 authors of the Constitution, 52 of them were active members of their church. Wow. Our founding fathers intended for this republic to choose candidates based on biblical character qualities and not the direction of the society. That is the definition of a republic. Because the ideals were birthed in the values of scripture, the selection of government officials was supposed to be based on the character qualities in the Bible. John Witherspoon, the president of Princeton and the trainer of more than 40 leaders to include senators and presidents and legislators, said three things were significant and very important about someone who was to be considered for political office. Number one, that he is the best friend to American liberty. First, who is the most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion. And secondly, he wrote, who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind. And thirdly, he wrote this, whoever is an avowed enemy of God, I scruple not, or I don't hesitate to say, to him an enemy of this country, he is. Now, consider that, someone who doesn't swear, someone who has a rever reverence for the Bible in the Word of God, and, and, and who is not an enemy of God that loves God. Those qualities were things to be considered and looked at in candidates. In fact, these things were the kinds of things compared in newspapers at the time in clippings, that this person is against this part of what God says. I wonder if that would be active on CNN today. I mean, let's check out Fox News for those quotes, right? Abigail Adams wrote, A true patriot must be a religious man. He who neglects his duty to his maker may well be expected to be deficient and insincere in his duty toward the public. In other words, his private faith was significant to his public work. Number three, the Bible was the source of defining laws. I don't know if we, you knew this, but Blackstone's commentary from, 1770, from 1766 to 1920 was the standard textbook and series for lawyers in their training. Lawyers like James Madison, Thomas Madison, James Wilson, John Marshall, Charles Finney, one of my faves, and Abraham Lincoln. There was two things about the commentary that were really important, and I just want to read from the commentary notes about why it was significant. Number one, it said, This commentary taught that our laws would not contradict God's decrees. Wow. In other words, the laws of America were not to contradict things in the Bible. The laws that were found supposed to be in government and supposed to be in our country couldn't have in any way any indifference to the principle or qualities of the word of God. And secondly, if God made a decree, the, the commentary, Blackstone's commentary goes on to say, that we could set our own policy. 
The Blackstone gives an example. In fact, it writes this. For instance, in the case of murder, this is expressly forbidden by the divine. I'm quoting from the commentary. This is expressly forbidden by the divine. If any human should allow us or to enjoin us to commit it, we are bound to transgress that human law. So there are places, he says, where you're supposed to break the law if it becomes law. You hearing me? Come on, friends. It's going to become more relevant in the next 20 years. If I live that long and my kids, I hope and pray they take up the ministry in some way and they're facing this, and even in today's struggling church, as much as it's being battered and bruised before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, what kind of America and what kind of government, what kind of laws are they going to have to say from their pulpit is sin and wrong and they're going to have to proclaim it and they're going to have to take a stand for Jesus? He said, but in, in regress to matters that are not commanded, forbidden, the law of scriptures, for instance, the exporting of wool to foreign countries, let the legislature take up the scope of their interpose and make the best decision. So he clearly says there are things that are not in the Bible that we're just with our own wisdom and good prudence are going to make the wisest decisions from, but those things that are expressly forbidden in scripture, the laws of God are supposed to be part of our government. John Adams says, we electors have an important constitutional power placed in our hands. We have a check upon two branches of the legislature. It becomes necessary to every citizen when to be in some degree a statesman, an example, and judge for himself the political or the pr political principles and measures. Let us examine them with a sober Christian spirit, he writes. Let me tell you, these things and ideals are very unique to America. Not um, almost every other country, save Israel, so I can think of one other one, I can think of some others that are kind of there, but besides that one, America's the only one that has this basic foundational ideals in the formation of government. When you look at our world today, friends, and you contrast these ideas to where we are, what goes on in your mind? Rage. How many have yelled at the TV this last political season? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Sorrow. A broken heart. I look at the things, and friends, I, I got to say, I... Those people, people that are uh, caught up in a homosexual lifestyle or in some other ways, I, I love them. We are God's people. We love people. But when I saw it lifted up as the standard in our nation with the White House raising the colors of the pride, my heart broke. I, I was enraged for a moment that then I was just broken. I was like, God, what has happened that, that the, the things that are being elevated are the things that, that we should really be helping people out of? A democracy is simply the deterioration of a republic. It's not founded on people that bear up biblical principles and ideals and are living them out. Those are the qualities that they should be posted in office for. Rather, it's based on what the majority wants. 
It's a lazy way out. And where people are drawn to more what a small snippet sounds like rather than a careful evaluation of a candidate is in their, their opinion, what their opinions really mean. We are in danger, and we have been in danger. It's, it's not based on feelings, but facts and character, isn't it? There may be things that we don't like, and we may not like this, but um, it may be something you've never heard before, but a democracy is what many of us in the church really don't want. We want God's principles and ideals in our country. We desire that. And because we have freedom, we have the ability to voice those things, at least for now. <laughs> people in culture like James Dobson or Franklin Graham are made out to be ridiculous people of nonsense, right? And I mention their names and in, in, in our setting here because they're, they're in Christendom we, we recognize among many others of course but and the church has declined in America from what it was, once was Benjamin Rush the founder of five universities um, writes on if we ever lost our knowledge of the Bible listen to what he writes the only way of perpetuating our republican forms of government is the universal of educating our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible let the secular progressives read that. That the Bible should be taught in school. That the principles of good living and being fair and honest, loving God, and having the, a right spirit about things should be taught in the classroom. So how did we forget? Well, the church became complacent, friends. I, I, oh, my goodness. You might want to turn the sound off. There you go. Yeah. Those animations come with sound. Woo! It's kind of racy sounding. I guess I wanted to make a point. How did we forget? The church became influenced by the philosophies of humanism. Now, this is really the bridge and point at which America took a sharp turn. America took a hard turn. The birth of humanism and continuing the progressive movement is really what is going on today because of what happened years, years ago. New teachings at the turn of the 20th century uh, by a few outspoken humanists really established this in our culture. Pretty soon, the ideals of being a Christian, um, and, and they have been for many years, or, um, uh, are scoffed at and made to be ridiculous. Um, and more and more, because Christianity is a post-Christian nation now, has become more and less and less uh, Christians taking a stand in, in the right way in government. I, I believe that we're sounding more and more annoying, right? And, and our, the opinions of holiness and righteousness, sexual purity and morality, those kind of things that, that we say in, in the lifestyle that Christ calls us to live and, and he begins to work in us and give us, replace the things we once knew, uh, the addictions and things of the forms of this world to the beautifulness of freedom in Christ, that will quickly and more and more become shameful, evil, horrible, bigoted prejudice. That's what it will sound like even more and more. It already is. And you know that, but it's going to become more and more. The birthplace of humanism is, is really came from one guy in particular who was really ensconced. His name was Colonel Robert Ingersoll. 
Now, I don't know if you've heard of Colonel Robert Ingersoll, but he was one of America's openly avowed secular humanists and aggressively attacked the Judeo-Christian ethic, the way that God calls us to live. And when he did this, he really uh, became very, mil he was very militant, right? And he was um, one of the, the first militant humanists in America and very open. And he, he, he Thomas Jefferson, uh, the formation of our country, uh, was not necessarily in a Christian at all, but he had respect for the principles of godly living and living the principles of God's word. In fact, I'm going to read a quote by him. He said the same thing, but look at what Ingersoll wrote. He, it's just crazy guy. So anyway, we are laying the foundations of the grand temple of the future wherein will be celebrated the religion of humanity. We are looking for the time when reason enthroned upon the world's brain shall be the king of kings and god of gods. Now, obviously, greatly influenced by the theory of evolution have brought Ingersoll to such uh, an opposition to Christian faith, he became so outspoken in government and in higher education and, and began to, to gather the minds of young people. Did you know that 80% of people that come to know Jesus Christ do, do so before they're 18 years old? 85%. Now, that, that's pretty astounding. Now, how many came to Christ after 18? Uh, there's a number of us, right? A number of people in here. I, we know that. Um, that, that's a statistic. It's not always the case. We, we understand that. But he understood this in education and dove deep into education as, as parents were sending their children to school to make the schools an incubator for humanism to contrast the idea of their parents. There's no other source for this than wicked, evil presence of Satan stuff, right? I mean, this is just... That kind of thinking is opposite God's word. It's selfish. It's, it has no self-control. It's not loving. It's not accepting. It's, 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 it's proprietary all by itself. It loves what only it loves and has no acceptance of anyone else. So Ingersoll had two major teachings that helped to advance his goal. And let me, as I read these and talk about them, see if you can't see them in our culture. Number one, Ignore a candidate's personal life, private life. The religious views of a candidate should be kept entirely out of sight in Ingersoll's mind. All these are private and personal. Remember Benedict Arnold, the trader, right? He was a general, the leader. Well, uh, the supply, stealing supplies from the soldiers who were starving to death at Valley Forge. He was a trader. His private life mattered. Ultimately, obviously, it came out, but... Private life is always real life. If one acts great in private, they're great indeed. When nobody's looking, how are you acting? That's the life of a spirit-filled Christian. Always come to that place of God, search me. Know my heart because we can come here on Sunday morning and praise God and raise our hands and say hallelujah and be totally someone else. We have had presidents that have proclaimed Christ from their mouth and legis but legislate very differently. How many times they close with saying, God bless America, and you wonder, what God? <laughs> Friends, do your best to examine the roots of a candidate because the fruit is defined about who they are in their private life. We need candidates like John Adams. said, the duration of future punishment terrifies me. <laughs> I mean, he understood, right? 
Reverend Matthias Bennett made a great point in the 1803 sermon before the Grove Jonathan Trumbull and the Connecticut legislature at their request. He said this, listen to his message, feeble would be the best form of government without a sense of religion and the terrors of the world to come. Banish a sense of religion and the terrors of the world to come from every society and you leave every man to do that which is right in his own eyes. The man who is not actually actuated by the fear of God, awe of God, has in many cases not bound or restraint upon his conduct and therefore is not fit to be trusted with a nation's welfare. Think not that men who acknowledge not the providence of God nor regard his laws will be uncorrupt in office. Wow. <laughs> we need more preaching like that. Noah Webster, in instructing his students, wrote, in selecting men for office, let principles be your guide. Principle be your guide. Regard not particular sect or denomination of the candidate. Look to his character. It is alleged by men of loose principles or defective views of the subject that religion and morality are not necessary or important qualifications for public stations. Webster noted that those who advocate um, religion and morality are not, uh, are not important to politics. Who, who, who do advocate, I should say. They, they, he said that those that don't have a real problem. He said they have loose principles or they have defective views are his exact words. And then he goes on to say the scriptures teach a different doctrine. They direct that rulers should be men who rule by the fear of God. Able men, men of truth, hating covetousness. Webster says in one of the greatest quotes, and I love this one, he says, it is the neglect of this rule of conduct in our citizens that is not selecting godly men for offices directed by the, by the scriptures, that we must describe the multiplied frauds, the breaches of trust, preculations of embezzlements of public property, which astonish even ourselves, which tarnish the character of our country, which disgrace a Republican government. When a citizen gives his vote to a man of known immorality, he abuses his trust. He sacrifices not only his own interest, but that of his neighbor. He betrays the interest of his country. Webster basically says that if we knowingly allow immoral people into office, we are a traitor to our country. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know if we were to get Noah Webster or, or George Matheson in front of the Congress today and, and just let them speak, I don't think anybody would be left. They would all run out the door saying, what is this heresy? Ingersoll's second teaching, number one, ignore a private life, was compartmentalization. Now, he basically, religion should be compartmentalized so that its activities should be solely in the church, inside the four walls of the church. Now, I've been to Cuba, and I know what this looks like. So when you go to Cuba, we went on religious visas. We got in, and we, we went in, and we, but the only ministry we could ever do was inside the church. They can't do outreach. They can't go out. They can't witness outside the walls of the four church, the four walls of the church. Now, they do, and, and you know, Cuba's a communist country, right? They all get their, their little booklet for how many chickens and eggs that they can get every week based upon their and, and a doctor makes seven dollars a week just like a janitor everybody's the same I mean it's it's communism it's I mean it's what uh, the young people want in America they want that's what they want 
And I'll tell you, it's horrible. They, they hide pigs under their kitchen sink so that when the, the uh, police come by, that they don't see that they have extra food. Uh, it's, it's just horrifying. And they do what's called on the left so that they, can, they trade in American dollars for everything just so that they can get some money to live on. So they're still, uh, they're still being uh, a very much uh, capitalistic society underneath the surface. It's being cracked down on hard. Always has been. It's, it's just there. But when I was there, the astounding thing was always just being inside the church. The church was packed. I mean, it, it was, I guess the room was about this size right here. Rebar pews, people sitting on them, just packed. And they had a, upstairs they had a roof, and while I was preaching, they had me on a television up there, just an old tube TV with a, as big as they could get. And, and they were just hungry for God. And the music, oh, my goodness, the guy had trash can lids for his cymbals. I, I mean, it was like, and they were just, I, I'm at that Latin, you know, I just was dancing all the time. And it's amazing under persecution. Friends, I don't think we're that far away. I, I mean, you might say, Pastor, you're being a little extreme, but look at our culture. Some of the things, Jesus is coming soon, don't get me wrong, and I praise God for that, but it's astounding what happened in Cuba. As, as far as the church is concerned, many years ago, the Assemblies of God went into Cuba after the Pope had come and, and filled Havana with millions of people. And the, uh, um, Castro didn't want him there. But he, he came anyway. And, and, of course, the streets were flooded with people, and the Assemblies of God came in. And the Assemblies of God had a couple of dozen churches in the whole country. Q Castro, they, we said, hey, you know, you let... The Pope, come in, why not us? And so they said, okay, two weeks. Two weeks? You could do crusades across the country. Well, by the time we got there, 25 years later, there were 320 Assembly God churches. <laughs> Didn't take much. But Ingersoll promoted the idea that the church should be in the four walls. And he promoted this idea, our government should be kept entirely and purely secular. Look at his words here. He totally, that, the the the. Declaration of Independence says opposite everything he's saying here. And he's, he's saying everything that's a lie. Listen to what he says. Should be purely uh, secular. So our father said, <laughs> listen to this. We shall form a secular government. But, you know, the snippets on the news get the same weight. From a secular government, the Declaration of Independence denied the authority of any and all gods. <laughs> and gave praise to God. Oh, my goodness. They agreed that there should only be one religion. That was the religion of patriotism. Our fathers founded the first secular government that was ever founded in the world. Oh, my goodness. He's so full of it. I don't know what he was smoking or what he was shooting, but it was something. Charles Finney, probably perhaps one of the greatest eloquent preachers of the day, says Christians must vote for honest men. And take consistent ground in politics. God cannot sustain this free and blessed country which we love and pray for unless the church take their right ground. Elias Bodinal, president of the Continental Congress, said, If the moral character of a people once degenerate, degenerate, their political character must follow. These considerations should lead to an attentive solicitude to be religiously careful in our choice of all public officers and judge the tree by its fruits. Not only will you see that 
not see that ever or hear that ever in a school classroom or a textbook, but academia does its very best to, to, to hide and squelch the idea that these men were God followers, many of them faithful and trusting God in every part of their life with the formation of America's government. That's where it came from. I have a picture in my office that's hanging on the wall. And Jesse, we go get that. And um, it's, it's a picture of the first time they got together. You know what they did? They didn't know what to They prayed and they stayed there for a couple of hours on their knees. They knew the weight of what was happening. And, and I, I want to show that to you. And he'll bring that down. But when we, when we look at this and we look at the post-Christian nation that we're in, friend, I don't know about you, but it does something to my heart. It makes me sad. Another destroyer of America that all of them said was horrible was the zeal for party more than zeal for God. George Washington's farewell address considered to be the most significant speech he had ever given by a president in the history of, the, of America said this, let me warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party. It exists in all governments and is truly their worst enemy. The alternate domination of one party over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural, thank you, to party dissension, is itself a frightful despotism. The, com the common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it the interest and duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. It seems like that's all we hear is party. And this is what our first meeting in America looked like. Men on their faces seeking God. I can't even get this in the church. And here they are in government, on their faces, seeking God with great zeal and fervor. The stories from that prayer meeting are profound and amazing. Put that right there. So. Thank you. I love what Benjamin Rush served three presidents from different parties. He was asked how he could do that, and he answered this. I have been alternately called an aristocrat and a democrat. I am neither. I'm a Christocrat. <laughs> <laughs> I believe all power always fail, producing order and happiness in the hands of a man. He alone who created and redeemed man is qualified to govern him. Praise God for that. What is the result? The result is post-Christian America, where five out of 100 people will be in any kind of church this morning. Luke 9, 23, then Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his very self? Luke 9 is not an isolated incident for this teaching of Jesus. Uh, one time when surrounded by a crowd of people, he said, unless you hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. In other words, unless your love for me makes their love for your love for them seem like hate. It doesn't mean to hate people. It means that our love and affinity for God should be so great. Friends, that's where I think the church lost its appetite. And I say with great sorrow that 
We began to preach psychological principles from the pulpit rather than just God's word. It's been going on for many years. Jesus said just the opposite. He said, heads up, guys, run to the altar. Be willing to give your life. So here's the dangerous reality. Do we give up everything? And I'm going to make a call to the Christians, all of us who are Christ followers. Are you willing to lay down your life for America before the cross of Christ? Are you, are you willing to say, Jesus, touch this land for the sake of a billion people today who don't or have never even heard about Jesus, for the sake of 26,000 children who will starve to death today, who will go to sleep for the last time, Will we put it all on the line? Will we lay it all down and say, Jesus, I am willing to intercede. I'm willing to ask you. I'm willing to, to press on and live for you and live for you out loud. You see, I don't think the world needs quiet Christians anymore. It doesn't need people that are just looking to just become a friend of someone and uh, just, just to kind of get by. We're looking to befriend people to deliberately tell them about Jesus. We're being people who are not ashamed of Jesus. We're not beating people up with the Bible as I see so many people do, but yet in a loving way, we're willing to stand for what is true and right. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to prayer with a contractor or, or, or sat with somebody in business for something, and I said, hey, we're going to pray. Do you mind if I, or we're going to eat. Do you mind if I pray? And they, every time they said, no, I don't mind. It opens the conversation. Friends, there are ways. Of prayer, the creation of laws that choke out the message of Jesus have been, has been in our country. Prayer that had been practiced in schools for 300 plus years in the Constitution uh, for 171 consecutive years all of a sudden stopped. Why? Because prayer was important to the Founding Fathers. And it, for those 171 years, it was something that was significant to them. And it was in education. And it was everywhere. Why? Because everyone believed in God? No, but because we knew that the foundation of America was built by faith in Jesus Christ. In the 60s, a new group appeared on the, on the court in 1962, and they covered a statement which belie their beliefs, is, they believe, was not in the Constitution. The First Amendment, they were offended in any other founding document, and they claimed separation of church and state. And we know the truth of that. You know, it's not in the Constitution. It's been interpreted from the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, which was in a letter, Thomas Jefferson, the Anabaptist. And you know the story. He said, America's not going to impose a rule of religion on you. Don't worry about it. He said, Thomas Jefferson, who was not openly a Christian, said this to them. The next year, and after, in 1962, let's see, the use of the Bible in schools, they, they, they said that it couldn't be. Now, the rule changed when a little gal wanted to pray in school and they told her not to. She took it to court in 1986. She passed a rule. The Supreme took it to Supreme Court. She said students during non-instructional time can read their Bible and pray in school. But for a long time, it just wasn't allowed. Right? It was something that wasn't permitted. Now, the students are being bold with them. See you at the flag, the pole once a year. They're getting together, which is beautiful. It's awesome. They ruled out the use of the Bible in school, but they never, they didn't cite legal precedent. They didn't cite anything. They did it just because, through the aid of a psychologist. And he said, he said this in the argument. He said, if, if portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the student. 
This had nothing to do with historical foundation. And Stone versus Graham has stated that it was unconstitutional for students to see the, the copy of the Ten Commandments, even though they are in the Supreme Court posted right there. And the argument went this way, they quote, and I quote, if the posted t copies of the Ten Commandments are of any effect at all, it will be introduced to school children to read, meditate on, and perhaps venerate and obey the commandments. This is not permissible. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not bear false witness. Maybe they didn't have a problem with those, but love the Lord your God. Love him alone. Right, have no other gods before me. Maybe that, I think those first three were probably the difficult parts. <laughs> Violent crime since then has increased by 800%. Since religious influence has been re removed from public arenas, did you know that? Institutions reflect the values of those who are in leadership over them, and that means America. Today is the 4th of July, which was recently blasted by the Juneteenth push for being prejudiced and all these things and we know America has its sins right we're we're not blind to that we we understand the wickedness of slavery we understand all those things but to say that that just because you know all of these other things that one thing is about history is neither good or bad it just is it it's, it just is and and it's mm, let's not go there let's stick to the so what do we do? I want to hurry along because it's 4th of July and you've got barbecues to go to, I'm sure. <laughs> Number one, I think we've really got to understand, friends, that God's word is greater than politics and government. Now, we need to understand that personally because we are the ones, we are the bearers, we are the carriers of the word of God. We've got to understand that our rights are biblically given but not politically protected. It wasn't that long ago that a man went to Saudi, right? I don't know if you saw it on the news. And he preached the gospel. Well, he was arrested and he was put to death. He had religious rights that were not politically protected. I mean, you just don't go to Saudi Arabia and start preaching on a street corner. In America, we have that freedom. And friends, while we still have it, we have to understand that they are politically protected and we don't have to be ashamed or afraid to stand for them. There's persecution going on right now. I... I've been in the workplace. I'm married to someone who goes to a secular workplace. You guys are in the secular workplace. You often are subject to biblical principles in your life, the Bible being offended, right? It's just happening. It's, it's just out there. It's everywhere. If you've ever been on a framing crew on a flight line, it starts in the, the cursing. I think the cursing and the, the bad joking and all that, even though... You know, one Paul, he said not to do that. Obviously, the scripture says we're not. But it goes deeper in that this pressure is now applied that if you don't help us celebrate this certain thing, which is biblically sinful, not just accept being around those people and working with them to produce great things, but if you don't help us celebrate it, you are a bigot. You might not get hired because you will not celebrate that is a line that we're having to draw. And in this culture, we need to be even more prayerful. I believe that God's going to provide for his people, amen? He's going to give you opportunities. He's going to open doors for you. But those things are real challenges because you still love those people. We love those people. We care. We work well with everyone, right? We're believers, amen? 
We can work with everyone. That's what we do. We get along with everybody. But it does hurt when you hear the things. And it used to hurt me all the time. I would go to a job or, or go to school even as a kid. I was so fired up, so called to ministry. And, and, and I would go and I would hear these awful things. And I felt like the Jesus that I loved, that I was at church worshiping, the Bible that I read, is being so insulted. And it would hurt me. You know, it, it would, and, and I kind of got, I had to get toughen up and get some maturity about it. I recognize that they're, they're, that hurts me because they're, they're defaming what I believe about Jesus and that I love. So I love truth and honesty and integrity and, and the goodness of God and dwelling in the Holy Spirit and studying the Bible and being around people of faith that, that live a certain way. I enjoy that and I love that. And when I hear that just being blasted, it, you know, just, it just does. And you can't escape it. It's everywhere. Secondly, to have the courage to stand. And I'll hurry. I know since we blew up the thing, we have a few extra minutes, right? A little grace. Have you heard many in ministry that stay out of the issues of politics? Just don't go near it. Well, you know what? That's not established through separation of church and state. The tax-exempt status of churches has been threatened because we take certain stands. But it is not a true thing. It has been tried against people of faith, and it has failed. John Muhlenberg, June 21, 1776, he preached to his congregation about the history of America and the pursuit of civil and national liberties, about freedom and the inspiring hopes his Virginia congregation had he then touted the threads of those liberties and the perils of what could happen in this, in this forming republic. He wrote this, or said this, In the language of the Holy Writ, Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time for all things, a time to preach, a time to pray. But these times have passed away. Then in a loud voice, he said, There is, com there is a time to fight, and that time has now come. <laughs> then taking off his clerical robe, he revealed his officer's uniform. He came off from the pulpit and ordered the drumbeat as he enlisted three, 300 men to be the 8th Virginia Regi Regiment. And he went on to be the highest ranking officer of the American Revolution under George Washington. What a sight. Have you ever seen the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson? He took, he took, this is one of the, that's one of my favorite movies, okay, it's one of the top ten. He took this account in history right into the movie, and you see it being acted out. And I, uh, you know, we get this sort of image from Hollywood of the whimpering Father Mulcahy and MASH, but this guy, I mean, he took off his, yes, <laughs> one of my favorite preachers of all time, Charles Finney, the church must take its right ground in politics. Politics are a part of religion in such a country as this, and Christians must do their country as part of their duty to God. God will bless or curse this nation according to the course Christians take in politics. And finally, we're to pray for America. Friends, there's a couple of reasons, I think. And Pam, uh, band, would you guys come? And there's a couple reasons. And the guys who are going to serve us this morning, would you just come and be ready? Just stand up at the front for me. 
Actually, why don't you go ahead and begin to serve. If you'd like to receive communion this morning, as I start this close, receive the emblem with us. There's only two reasons that I believe America is not in biblical prophecy directly. We so many, see so many things directly. Number one, which I think is very unlikely, we're all just raptured out of here. I don't believe that's going to be the case. Secondly, she's destroyed. I don't know what to say, friends. If anything we can see in our world today, for us in this room and those who watch online, is for us to jump into the arena of prayer and ask God for his blessing in our country. We need God to give new convictions in our country and our government. And I know, friends, it seems like an uphill battle, doesn't it? It seems like an uphill battle sometimes. But see, we're not always, not necessarily called to just, to just go picket something. Let me tell you where our first ministry is and the priority of abundant life. This is the first ministry, the ministry of prayer. The ministry of prayer, the backbone of prayer for everything that we do, for every outreach we give, for every class that we teach, for every word that we say, that it be bathed in prayer, that every action that we take as believers, that we, as we leave the room, when we go into the private places of our homes, that we bathe those things and these opportunities that we have today with prayer. And we say, Jesus, have mercy on our country, but God, send revival through your church. God, let it begin with us. Why not, friends? <coughs> Why not? Jesus, let it begin with us. Lord, let revival begin right here. Let the power of your Holy Spirit begin right here. Because everything that happens comes out of the prayer meeting. It comes with being in the presence of God together. <coughs> the church was meant to pray together. His house will be called a house of prayer together. We're supposed to pray together. Don't avoid the prayer meeting. It is the only thing that we are doing right now. It is the priority of what we must do. There are still people that, that sit... Uh, you know, at home, or, or we're in the church with our arms folded. We're not engaged. Our spirit is still dead. The only way to awaken is through prayer. <laughs>